Have you noticed that the world has gone insane? For example, tell me if these headlines ring a bell for you. Bud Light makes a special commemorative can for trans girl Dylan Mulvaney. Dove hires a Black Lives Matter activist and 400-pound body positivity model to promote their products. Target sells chest binders and tuck-friendly undergarments for kids. Are you sick of living in clown world yet? Are you tired of spending your money with woke companies that hate your values? As good libertarians and free market capitalists, we all believe in the power of voting with your dollar. But where do you go when it seems like no matter where you turn, you're surrounded by woke companies or brands? What if I told you I found the solution? A shopping club that's been in business for 38 years, supports conservative values, bans toxic ingredients and harsh chemicals, and makes 99% of its products right here in America. It's America's best kept secret, but not for much longer. I buy almost all of my everyday household products from this all-American shop club. No more Target for me. Everything from cleaning supplies, makeup, vitamins, supplements, toiletries, fitness and weight loss shakes, healthy snacks, and more. Over 450 products to choose from, and it's no added money to your budget because you're already buying these things anyway. You're just swapping where you shop for a company that actually aligns with your values. So if you want in on America's best-kept secret, a private, members-only shopping club not beholden to ESG, then go to libertyalliancenetwork.com forward slash wellness. It's a referral-based store, so you need a current member like me to refer you, but all you have to do is click the request invitation button on the page when you visit libertyalliancenetwork.com slash wellness. Let's help make Go Woke, Go Broke a reality. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Liberty Alliance Network's What Can We Do? I'm Haley Heathman, and today I am pleased to be joined by Christy Grab. Christy is a native Californian who resides in San Diego. She's just an everyday taxpaying American, or so she thought, until she found herself embroiled in a literal taxation as theft, embezzlement, and racketeering scheme, courtesy of California's Franchise Tax Board. She's spent the last 15 years fighting back and exposing their schemes, and we're going to hear all about it today. So, Christy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you sent me a bunch of material uh, in advance of this interview because, like, well, this is a lot. And I, I think I was a little bit surprised, too, about how far back this goes. So um, I didn't realize. So so we'll, we'll get to your story, but tell me, like, just tell me, uh, let's go back to even before that. Describe your life before all this happened. So who was Christy before all this happened? Um. So I was, uh, I worked in the mortgage industry, um, uh, in my early twenties. Um, and then I, uh, got married and then my husband and I, shortly after we got married, decided that we wanted to, uh, buy a boat and sail around the world. So in 2007, my husband and I left our jobs and we sailed around the world, um, on our boat. And then when we got back, uh, the mortgage industry had collapsed and I didn't really have a job to go back to. 
Um, and at that point in time, we were trying for a baby. So we decided it probably wasn't a good idea to have me start over at the bottom rung in a new career because um, infant costs would be more than I would be bringing in. Um, so I became a stay-at-home mom after that. And that actually worked out really well because all three of our parents got sick. And so I wound up being a full-time caregiver for our elderly parents along with our baby. And then meanwhile, I got sick. And so literally... I spent all my time schlepping from doctor to doctor <laughs> as I was trying to work on my own health and my parents and, you know, all with a baby, you know, with a little one. Right. Yeah. And then, um, obviously, well, and you had no idea what was to come either. And so maybe also because you, um, we're a stay-at-home mom, and and not obviously that's a full-time job, and as well as caregiving, that's a, a full-time job. But still, um, with that said, there's still some flexibility with that because um, I think since then you didn't realize the saga that you were going to get embroiled in with this California franchise tax board. So why don't you start me off and tell me how this all began? Like, like you were just one day, you're just Christy living life with, you know, being a stay at home mom. And then the next day, holy crap, what just happened? Like, and how did I get (laughs) what's going on here? So um, my husband's company went public. And so we um, were selling stock each quarter. And so every quarter I sent in an estimated quarterly tax payment for however much stock we'd sold. Um, And the Franchise Tax Board kept losing our payments. Um, Between 2008 and 2016, they lost 14 of the payments that we sent in. So clearly, there's a serious problem with the bookkeeping. And some of the payments were relatively easy to find. Um, Even the easy to find ones took two phone calls and a fax. Um, And even after they found the payment, it would take them six weeks to apply it to our account. Um, But other of the payments just couldn't be located. Um, Some of the payments took... It was very common to take more than six months to locate a payment. One of the payments um, was broken up into and moved to three different tax years in three different places. And it took them seven years to find one of the portions of the payment. Um, And that took intervention from the state controller's office to make the franchise tax board find that money. And the reason why they couldn't find it was because there was accounting fraud on the file and all the dates had been altered. Um, And it looked like the money had been refunded to us when it hadn't been. So that's why that one was so difficult to find. So as a result of all this, I mean, obviously, there's very serious accounting irregularities going on, um, but I'm pretty sure that there's some kind of off-the-book spending account as well, and that I am working on substantiating still. That's not something that's already been substantiated. That was kind of a side tangent there. But anyway, um, so in 2010, um, we moved to Los Angeles um, so that my husband could take a job that had a, it was a big promotion and a big wage increase for him. So we moved up there 
And my husband hated the job and um, I hated living in Los Angeles. And his company here in San Diego offered him his job back uh, at the same amount of money that he was making in LA. So we packed up and moved within a couple of days. We were out so fast, it wasn't even funny. Um, but that was at the end of 2010. And uh, the post office never forwarded our mail to us. And I called multiple times and complained, but pretty much all of our mail was lost um, pretty early on from the beginning of the move. And some of the lost mail included tax documents. So I didn't realize that our tax documents were missing until early April when I went to go work on the tax returns. And so I requested new W-2s from his employer. Well, the W-2s came showing that he made a lot more money than he actually did. So I didn't file the tax returns right away. So the Franchise Tax Board sent me a notice saying, you owe us all this money in, uh, in, tax, in taxes. And it listed the amount of money that was collected by my husband's employers but it didn't have the amount of money that I'd sent in an estimated tax payment. So there was five estimated tax payments missing. Um, and so it turned into a giant fight at that point where, you know, th those were three of those payments were the payments that I was talking about that couldn't be found for years. Um, and so I kept going round and round and round with them to try to find these lost payments. Um, and so, and I didn't file my taxes because I wanted the lost money to be found before I filed the taxes. You know, they're saying we owed all this money. And um, so anyway, this dragged on for years and eventually I got my legislators involved. And as soon as the legislators got involved, they magically found the money like that, almost all the money, not the, that $1,000 portion of that one payment. It, that didn't get found right away, but they told me that none of the money was ever lost. It was required by law to not apply the money to your account until you filed your tax return. And I said, which law is that? And they said, well, I don't know, but it is a law. We're not allowed to apply the money to your account until you actually file. And I was like, yeah, if you don't have a law for me, that's not a law. I mean, a statute number, that's not a law. So anyway, I realized I got caught in an embezzlement and racketeering scheme, and I've been trying to put a stop to it ever since. Right. And so, like, you're not talking, um, this isn't jump change. You're talking, like, tens of thousands of dollars here that they yes. just, you're not talking, like, paltry little $500, you know, like, missing so, money. For example, um, two of the payments that couldn't be located uh, were totaled $13,500. They filed a wage garnishment against my husband for $6,000 instead of finding the $13,500 that was lost. So they made us send them more money for this wage garnishment that never should have been imposed in the first place. And I had, there was no due process at all. Like they just tell you that they think the money's due and there's no recourse. I mean, I never got to go before a judge to say, hey, look at all this money that I've sent them that they've lost. So all in all, I mean, yeah, we're talking, we're talking, I had paid tens of thousands of dollars more than they kept claiming we owed. And yeah, and there were a few time, points in time where I just wanted them to leave me alone. So I sent them the money that they claimed was due just to get them off my back. Like, 
I had a lot going on. I had three sick parents. I was sick. I couldn't take the stress. Um, so I sent them money multiple times to get them to go away and they lost those payments. So <laughs> like, it didn't matter if I sent them the money because they lost it anyway. That's unbelievable. That's totally, totally unbelievable. Um, like, so when you're dealing with this experience and you're trying to like talk through this and get and and, and figure this out, like, who are you talking to? Are you able to, is there like a case file or anything like that? Or is it like every time you, you make a contact, like it's starting from zero, you have to explain the whole situation all over again. And Debbie doesn't know what Jamal is doing and Jamal doesn't know what, you know, Suzette is doing. And so there's never any, like, you have to just kind of re-explain the whole thing. And, you know, one person says one thing and the next person says another, like, how is that? So that's how it was in the beginning. So I um, have been accusing the Franchise Hacks Board for years of deliberately making it impossible to clear up mistakes. Um, and they actually admitted to it in March of 2023 at their board meeting. They actually admitted that penalties are being falsely imposed as a result of customer service failures. So one of the things that they do is they put, um, they send you a notice that says you have to there's a problem on your account, and in order to clear it up, you need to call this phone number, and it's the main customer service line. So you call in, you hold for an hour, the system hangs up on you, you call back, you hold for an hour, you get through to a customer service rep, and they tell you, oh, actually, you need to call the collections department, and the collections department number is this. So then you have to hang up and call again. But they mark the file as you were transferred. So even though you call, you hung up and called a different number and hold, held for another hour again, they say, oh, you were transferred to collections. So um, it's deceptive language that they give the regulators so that the regulators aren't aware of how bad the customer service really is. But anyway, um, so when you call the main customer service line, it's a new person every time. But when you call the... The follow-up number, like the collections department, you get assigned to a collections person. And so you do deal with the same person um, multiple times in that department. But it's always the same thing with them. All right, you need to send it, send in this fax. So another facet of their uh, racketeering scheme is that um, they don't process correspondence before the deadline expires. So when you get a notice in the mail, you have, it depends on what the notice is, but somewhere between 14 and 60, 60 days to respond to the notice. Um, and so you have to call in, find out what the problem is and how to fix it. And then you have to get your documentation together and send it to them. Um, the problem with that is that their turn time so I'll read you their most current turn times <laughs> that they disclosed in March 2023. So their um, so in March 2023, they disclosed that 54% um, of live chats go unanswered. So less than 50% of live chats are, are responded to. Um, only 40% of phone calls are answered. So 60% of the time they hang up on people like I got hung up on. Um, it takes them four 
to five months to process correspondence that's sent via the postal mail. So if you've got a 60-day deadline and they don't respond your to they don't process your correspondence for five months, they claim that you never responded, but you did. They just didn't get it in time. Um, and then on their website, it's is called My FTB. And so if you upload documents to their website, it's processed within 30 days. But if you got a notice in the mail that said you have 30 days to respond from the date that we mailed, and then you have to call in and talk to the rep, and then you can respond with the appropriate documents, you, you would have to literally respond the same day that they put the notice in the mail for them to process it before the deadline expired. The other thing they didn't talk about in the March meeting is that they have a one week turn time on faxes. So the only way you might be able to get uh, your documents processed before the deadline is via fax, but almost invariably they lose the faxes when you send them. So, and it's difficult to get through. So you'll have to go and spend an hour getting a busy signal and then the fax transmits and then you wait a week to call to follow up and they say, Oh no, we never got it. You got to send it again. So, <laughs> and that's uh, something that struck me when I was watching all, all the videos. And, and by the way, of course, this is going to be on my show notes page, libertyalliancenetwork.com slash what can we do? You'll find all the show notes and um, Christy's blog and YouTube channel where um, she's done multiple videos about this whole scheme and, and really goes in depth about everything that's going on because there's that we you know, can't cover it all. I mean, this has been 15 years in the making, um, but we'll just touch on the highlights. But I remember in one of those videos, you talking about, and, and it, because it started in 2008, um, you know, they didn't even have a website initially. I think you, it was either you had to do things by snail mail or by fax. And the amount of hours you were saying that it took to just waste, just waste trying to get these faxes sent off. And it was one of the things that, you know, one of your your arguments about how, um, well, of course, this affects those people of low socioeconomic status the most because um, they don't have access to these resources. You were lucky you had a friend at the time who still had a fax in her home. And so you would go hang out with her in her home. But most people, I mean, we don't, I mean, even back then, we, I didn't think I knew anybody who had a fax machine in their home. Um, and so it's just another kind of way to prey on the weak and the disadvantaged in a way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I 100% believe that they are targeting um, uh, the low socioeconomic demographic. Um, and they are really kind of creepy in how they stock low socioeconomic people. Like they're constantly trying to get people who aren't required to file tax returns um, to file. They're offering carrots and incentives to try to get people to file tax returns even though they don't uh, aren't required to because they don't make enough money. Um, it's clear that it's an obsession with them to get low socioeconomic people to file. And then um, uh, there's a woman named Susan Maples who's kind of pivotal to my court case and stuff. She was a taxpayer advocate uh, during all the problems at FTB that I had with FTB, but she transferred jobs and now her job is literally to stock people of low socioeconomic status. And she made this presentation a couple of years ago at one of the board meetings that was super creepy about how extensively they, they stock the poor. Like, 
you know, they go to different charities and organizations and agencies that aid people to get data on who's getting aid and then hunt them down and try to get them to file tax returns. It's it's just really weird. Right. And then, um, so it, it kind of, uh, you know, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here too, but you kind of alluded to it before. Cause one of my questions was like, like, have you been, like, how is this structured? Like, have you been able to file the money, follow the money, like qui bono? Like, wh- have you been able to trace the origins of this scheme? Like, is it like, like what is going on here? Is this just gross incompetence or is this like, no. like <laughs> it's, it's, it's deliberate. Um, so last year, so every year there's something called the annual taxpayer bill of rights meeting where we have, the public has the opportunity to ask questions of franchise tax board, um, regarding policies and procedures and make requests to changes to policies and procedures. And um, last year, I asked them to disclose what they do with the money once they get it, like estimated tax payments. And they claim that all estimated tax payments are turned over to the state controller's office immediately upon receipt. Um, But the money, when it's embezzled, goes into an account called no payment. Like that was documented in my court case. Like they call them, they identify them as literally no payments. And so I think the Franchise Tax Board probably uses that word so that they don't have to send the money to the state controller's office and that they don't actually turn it over to the state controller until it's identified as an actual estimated tax payment. So as long as it's a no payment and not applied to anybody's account, it's it's money that's free to be utilized in other ways. Anyway, I'm certain it's an off-the-book spending account, and I'm not sure whether the state controller controls it or FTB controls it, but um, you know, it's 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 called no payment for a reason. Um, it's it's their slush fund. I'm sure. I, I that's not 100% documented. I'm still working on documenting it, but that's what all the uh, prima facie evidence indicates. Right. Well, then how do they get the just the kind of the grunts to kind of go along with this? Like, I mean, is there like a playbook? Well, I mean, I know you've 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 outlined kind of the steps of some of like the the like the four plays of how they the scheme works. But like as far as maybe the and, and I want you to walk me through that. But then also too on the other end of that is like it's not like they have that manual in front of them. So like how are they how are they getting the grunts to kind of do their dirty work for them? Or is it or is it or is it kind of like yes, you need to hang up on every four you know every four out of every ten calls or something like is that in their manual or something? So <laughs> the grant workers have no idea what's going on. Right. Um, so it is a scheme that's coordinated by upper management. And so upper management makes sure that each department makes mistakes. And each of these mistakes comes together to create the racketeering scheme. Um, so each department knows that their department's kind of messed up, but they don't understand how kind of messed up fits into the bigger picture uh, to create an actual scheme. So most of the grunt workers, I mean, some of the grunt workers are jerks, but really I would say the majority of them are actually nice people who are just doing their job and they're told it's legal. And so they have no reason to not believe that it's legal. And so they just do what they're told to do. Um, And FTB in that March 2023 board meeting said that they have a huge problem with 
turnover of new hires, that most new hires leave FTB before they've recouped the cost to train them for the job. So I think most people come into the job and realize, oh, this is a really jacked up place. I'm out of here. Um, and so not they didn't disclose the percentage of people that stay. Um, but they again, they did disclose that most people leave before the cost of the training has even been recouped. So the majority of people are leaving relatively quickly. Um, but, you know, the state of California, there's a lot of job stability and there's big fat pensions. So I think as people are there for a while, they start to eventually figure out, oh God, this is like not lawful. And I think those people just put the blinders on and just live in in denial because they need a good job. You know, they need a roof over their head. They need to support themselves. You know, they've worked there too many years. Now they're entitled to a pension. They're not going to give up their big fat pension. Um, and so I think like they put the blinders on and kind of super glue them to their head so that they just don't see what's going on around them. Right. Or, or try and claim uh, what plausible deniability of some sort. And, you know, I guess I, I kind of answering my own question about like these grunt workers. And if you think of just any, I'm sure, you know, it's probably not much different with government workers versus your typical corporate, you know, customer service. And they all have like a script that they work from. And so it's kind of like an if then kind of like if they complain about this, then this is your answer. And so like they're just probably reading from the script like and, and, and when they encounter somebody like you where they're saying, well, no, our tax law says blah, 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 blah. Well, they don't know what the law is. They're just that's just the script that they're told to read. Whereas you mm -hmm. actually now that you've been embroiled in this, I mean, you've almost become like a, a, a tax, I mean, somewhat of a tax expert yourself. And you can probably recite the law better than they can. And then they probably don't even know what to say to you at that point. Exactly. Yeah. And they're just like, well, um, I don't know. I mean, it is what it is. Um, and so actually they tried to ignore me and stop responding to me when I got to the point where the grunt workers couldn't answer. But then I got my legislators involved and the legislators required that the executives respond to me. And that's when the executives got involved and I started um, being able to kind of pick apart the, the schemes, um, you know, and able to get uh, information about how things work. Like there is a disclosure department that gives a lot of information if you ask for it in the right way, but you have to know what you're asking for and how to ask for it. And so like, you know, I did eventually find out about the existence of the disclosure department, but that was like pulling teeth to find out that information. And Remember that shop club I was talking about at the beginning of the show? You know, the one that has over 450 American-made products and doesn't get down with the wokeness? Well, what if I told you they have their own beef operation as well? That's right. One more added benefit of the shop club is getting a discount on America's best beef. And I mean it when I say that. What makes it America's best beef? Well, it's the only operation in America that is fully vertically integrated, meaning they control everything, the whole operation from feed to finish. Cows are raised humanely in pastures with their mothers, not in slaughterhouses, and they are processed and packaged right in their own facilities, not shipped off to China or God knows where and sent back. 
Best of all, they have the never ever guarantee. Never raised with hormones, antibiotics, or mRNA injections, which sadly is something we have to be worried about these days. All of their beef is either USDA prime or high choice, which is something most other beef boxes can't boast about. But what I like best of all is the price. Look, I want to support local farmers and ranches as much as anyone. But when I looked into some of them, well, let's just say it was cost prohibitive, especially when you add in shipping costs. Here, the shipping is included and the beef boxes are deeply discounted when you're a member of the shop club. So their bundles are way more affordable than anything else on the market, especially for the quality you're getting. Something you might not know about me, but I was a yacht stewardess for 10 years. Trust me when I say I know good food and I haven't had better beef than this outside of the top steakhouses in the country. If you want in on some of this beefy action, head to libertyalliancenetwork.com forward slash steak. You don't have to be a member of the shop club to buy their beef, but their best prices are reserved for the shop club members. So I highly recommend joining the club as well. Check it all out at libertyalliancenetwork.com slash steak and discover America's best beef. Well, and and this goes back to, I think, like um, you mentioned a playbook and, and in one of your blog posts, it's it's kind of a playbook for that they use, but also that some of these other government agencies, they all seem to play from. And one of them is like they kind of cover for each other. So, yes. you know, they're all kind of covering for each other. And they, 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 and of course the game is rigged. So that's part of it too. The game is rigged. Um, you know, at one point I think you, uh, well, one thing that they do and, and you can, you know, fill in the details, I think is that um, they appoint you some sort of a, a tax attorney, but it's like basically a student and they're associated with the franchise tax board. So it's like the fox guarding the hen house, so to speak. Uh, and not only that, of course, even if they weren't owned or compromised by that position, they just are incompetent because they're basically students. So it's almost like a joke of like, yeah, here you go. We'll give you some free representation. And <laughs> So one of the things that I didn't mention um, to you, but is probably worth mentioning now, is that system with the uh, changed when Governor Brown was in office. Uh, so it used to be that if you wanted to appeal a penalty that had been imposed, you would file an appeal with the Board of Equalization and their elected representatives. And so you didn't need an attorney. You could have one if you wanted one, but you didn't need it. You just went and made um, a case to these elected officials about why your penalty shouldn't have been imposed. And there was actually really good success in getting penalties refunded because uh, the Board of uh, e equalization are elected people and they want to be reelected and they want to be popular with the people. So they would side with the people on things that were blatantly unfair. So Governor Brown changed that and he took that um, appeal duty away from the Board of Equalization and he created a new agency called the Office of Tax Appeals. So the Office of Tax Appeals is an administrative court and you do need an attorney. I mean, you can represent yourself, but because it's not informal like the Board of Equalization was, you really do need an attorney. Um, and so they offset that need for an attorney with this free lawyer program, um, and so, but yeah, the free lawyer is a student 
and the student is under the purview of the Franchise Tax Board, and the student's supervisor is an employee of the Franchise Tax Board. So literally, their job is to make sure you lose. And even if you do get your own representation, statistically speaking, almost everybody loses at the Office of Tax Appeals, because the Office of Tax Appeals' job is to rubber stamp all the unlawful stuff that FTB is doing. Well, and I was taken aback when I was reading that the blog post that you wrote um, kind of about this, where even if you do get a private attorney, well, number one, you're only trying to recoup, I mean, in your case, like $15,000. And they're <laughs> they're giving you like an estimate or, or uh, uh, of like a wi- I mean, wild, wild estimate of like $100,000, $300,000 or $800,000 to, so to- let's let's just clarify something. So the Office of Tax Appeals, I think uh, what did they quote me like uh I think somewhere between 5 and $15,000 depending on how complicated the case was. But it seemed ridiculous to pay $15,000 to get a $15,000 refund maybe when statistically speaking, I had like a 90% something chance of losing. So that was kind of a, a waste of money. But for the superior court case, yeah. When I So if you lose with the Office of Tax Appeals, you have the right to appeal to superior court. So when I started looking for an attorney for superior court, I talked to three attorneys. And one quoted me $100,000. And one quoted me $300,000. And one quoted me $800,000. And I think the $800,000 guy was the right number. I think all of them would have been 800000 when all was said and done. Because the Franchise Tax Board plays dirty and they deliberately do things to run up costs. And so because of their dirty tactics to um, create extra motions and things and run up charges, um, yeah, you you it, it is very expensive. So yeah, like I'm going to pay $800,000 to get my $15,000 back. But I just felt strongly that I wasn't going to let this go. So I decided, you know what, I would rather try and fail than not try at all. So I decided to sue them myself acting as my own attorney. And going back to the Office of Tax Appeals case, I did get the free attorney to start with. Um, But the free attorney refused to address the accounting fraud. He wanted me to make a case that the reason why we filed late was because I had health problems. And I was like, no, that's not the reason at all. I filed late because they lost my money and they kept making me jump through these hoops to find it. And like, I couldn't file my tax returns because I spent all my time jumping through hoops trying to find this lost money. But the, um, the attorney wouldn't address that, wouldn't talk about it whatsoever, Um, so when I got pushy and said, Hey, this is a conflict of interest that you won't address these accounting fraud issues. He fired me. So then I wound up representing myself through the rest of the office of tax appeal case. So because it went okay in the office of the tax appeals, I was feeling kind of emboldened and like, you know what? I did it once. I can do it again. I'll do this in superior court. No problem. (laughs) And so how did that go? I mean, did you continue to represent yourself? Did did it go up to that level or did you? Yeah, yeah, I did represent myself. Um, the, the case went for two years and I think I did a pretty darn good job when all is seven said and done, given the fact that I have no real legal training. I put a lot of effort into learning um, what I was doing and, and you know, um, and I didn't have a lot of the tools that are available to lawyers. 
Um, but you know, there's a lot of bad attorneys out there. And I think, you know, obviously I didn't do as good of a job as a good attorney would have done, but I think I did a better job than a bad attorney would have done. Um, and because I was doing my own legal work, it made me really scrutinize the documents a lot more carefully than I would have otherwise. And I think that if I had paid the money to an attorney, a lot of stuff that I found in the fraud and the perjury um, would have been missed because I would have assumed that the attorney was scrutinizing would have noticed the perjury and um, the improperly redacted documents. But now I realize, you know what? They're busy. They're not really scrutinizing stuff. They're like looking for keywords and stuff. So I think because I was going through things carefully line by line, um, a lot of evidence, I, I was able to point out a lot of evidence that they had submitted. Um, I had been able to find improprieties in a lot of the evidence that they'd submitted that an attorney would have missed. So I think, you know, even though I didn't win my case, it was rigged. There was no way I was going to win my case. It actually was really a very good thing that I did it because the franchise tax board never denied the allegations of accounting fraud. Um, when I first made the allegations, they just ignored me, ignored me, ignored me. But at the very end, they did have to acknowledge them. And they just said that the fraud was irrelevant to the case and it didn't matter if they committed fraud or not. So now, because they never denied the accounting fraud, um, it is available to be used, uh, sorry, in California, failure to deny constitutes admission of truth. So they essentially tacitly admitted that they did execute accounting fraud on my account in many different ways. And now anybody can download my court documents and use them as evidence in their own court case. So I feel like I've done something really good for society at large in that there's um, documents available to support people's cases. But the other thing that I did was I, I found where to look for this stuff so that if other people pursue cases, even with a lawyer, at least they know where to look, where they hide the stuff. Right. That's super cool. I mean, I, I mean, I, like you said, it's a silver lining. Yes, you, you would have preferred to win your case, but that is really cool. Um, but it, it kind of, I mean, I think a fairly common legal mantra is I thought it fraud vitiate, vitiates everything. Yes. So, uh, but it doesn't seem to have done so in this case. They seem to have now, thrown, the, thrown that out the window, I guess. I don't know. The judge never acknowledged the accounting fraud ever. And actually, so Franchise Tax Board, like I filed the case um, saying that our fees were improperly imposed as a result of FTB's own accounting irregularities. And they claim FTB claimed the case was about something else altogether. They never acknowledged the case was about accounting irregularities. And the judge went with their version of the case. So my case was never heard by the judge. Like the judge never heard my case as I presented it. Like it was a total was straw man. It was like, it was, it was really surreal, but, um, one of the things that I did was I started watching trials in my judge's courtroom so that I knew what I was supposed to do when it was my turn to be there. Um, and also to get a better understanding of law and how the legal system worked. And so that's actually a pretty common tactic. I saw it a lot happen where 
one side would present one argument and the other side would present a different argument. And I would swear to God, they were not talking about the same thing at all. Like it was really weird. You know, so where are the, are these, I mean, like we like to think of judges as being like these impartial arbiters of law, but clearly they're not. Is there, I mean, I know you can't probably prove anything, but can you speculate about, is there, are they somehow in on it? Are they getting on the take somehow? Like, is there some of the, you scratch my brack, I scratch yours going on? What do you think? So I watched my judge a lot over the two years that the case uh, was pending. And I think he's a really good guy and he does try his best. But there were several cases where he basically said, I'm a yes man and I want to rule this way, but I will get in trouble. So I'm going to rule this way and you have my empathy. Um, And so at the end of my court case, he warned me, he threatened me and told me to stop making allegations of government corruption and that, you know, um, bad things would happen if I continue to make these allegations of government corruption. And I don't think he threatened me because he was a bad guy. I think he threatened me because he was genuinely concerned about my well-being and warning me I was going to get my... He actually said, Mrs. Grab, you're a nice person and you have a nice family because my family always came to court um, with us. And so I think he was trying to tell me, hey, you're putting your family in danger by making these allegations of corruption. So I think basically, you know, he's works for the state of California. And he knows if he goes against his employer, he's going to get fired or in trouble, or there's going to be retribution if he goes against his employer. So he didn't have any choice in the matter if he wanted to keep his job, right? Or not be retaliated against somehow. Um, And, you know, he was close to retirement age. Obviously, you need to protect the state of California's uh, revenue source. If you're going to retire, like he needed to make sure his retirement money was there that I didn't, he didn't rule in a way that would affect their ability to collect, uh, revenue or like reduce the amount of revenue that they collected. So yeah, he was a yes man. And I think they have to be yes men in order to, uh, to keep their jobs. And I noticed on your blog too, that, you actually have a disclaimer saying I'm not suicidal. I don't drink. I don't take any drugs. Like, I mean, yeah, we could get a ha ha out of that, but like, have you to your knowledge experienced any sort of retaliation or is that just like a precautionary thing? The department of justice did post my and my husband's social security numbers on, uh, on the internet. Um, they, uh, and they have retaliated uh, against us. So, I mean, that was clear retaliation when they posted me and my husband's social security numbers. And it sent a clear message. The message was, we did this. So I had sent the evidence that the Franchise Tax Board submitted in the case. I took it. I highlighted the accounting fraud. And I refiled it with the courts with all the highlights and an explanation of how the fraud worked. But I also sent it to the California Auditor's Office and the FBI and the Department of Revenue, Federal Department of Revenue. And I filed a federal criminal complaint against two of the FTB staff who told me to send more money 
than the bill said was due. And then they falsified their internal records to make it look like that was always the amount of money due. So the Department of Justice responded by filing. So the Department of Justice was the attorney for FTB in the Superior Court case. Okay. Um, so the Department of Justice filed by uh, responded by filing a motion for sanctions, saying that I should have to pay eight thousand dollars as punishment for turning them into authorities. And that, that she wanted the judge to order me to stop collecting evidence of accounting fraud. Um, and so in that motion for sanctions, she posted me and my husband's social security numbers. But she didn't have them. She got them from FTB. And FTB is known for doing this. They've actually had to pay sanctions and penalties in other cases for exposing social security numbers as well. So this is a known harassment tool of the Franchise Tax Board. And the DOJ and the Franchise Tax Board conspired together to use it on me. But the thing is, is like they said it was an accident or inadvertent was the word. that The actual word was inadvertent. But um, FTB inadvertently gave her our social security numbers. And then she was required by law to notify, to send me the motion for sanctions 21 days prior to filing it with the court uh, so that I could rectify it um, without it having to go through the court system. But she didn't. She sent it to me after she filed it. So if she had followed the law and sent it to me prior, I would have caught the social security numbers and had to redact them or, you know, omit them before she submitted it to the court, but she submitted it to the court first. So she broke protocol. So there's no way it was an accident. Too many people made too many mistakes. Like, yeah, it was definitely not a, not an accident. So where do things stand now? Like how, did, like, like, like get me to the end. Like, uh, did you, were you made whole? How did this all end up or is it still ongoing or like what's going on now? Well, my case is like done and over with. So at this point, I'm not fighting for me to get money back. I'm fighting to get them to stop exploiting taxpayers. Like I want them to comply with the law. So um, something that I've learned through this whole process of acting as my own lawyer is that income taxes are illegal. Now, if you had told me that before I started down this legal road, I would have thought you were crazy. Like I thought the people that, that said taxes were illegal were crazy. And I mean, my problems are because I overpaid taxes and they lost the money. Right. So I don't have an issue with paying taxes or I didn't have an issue with paying taxes. I was, um, my issue was that they're cheating at their own rules. They have set up this system and they're cheating at their own system. And so um, now I'm trying to prove that they're cheating at their own system and get them to stop cheating at their system and to comply with their own rules. But by discrediting them, I'm opening the door for the anti-tax people to say, not only do they cheat at their own rules, the rules were never lawful to start with. So my thing isn't anti-tax. I just want them to comply with their own rules. But I'm kind of hoping to help this other movement as well. So then, but does like in your case, you know, you, you took it to the superior court and you said you lost. So what does that mean for you? Were you like, did you, you lost that case? Did you, was that it? Like, or were you ever made whole? So I, or 
I can no. I mean, I I I can sue them for um, fraud because the so like my case was a refund of penalties. Um, so that's over and done with. I didn't get my refund. That's done. But I still can sue them for damages um, as a result of the fraud. I can actually document that. So when I was really sick with my rare kidney disease. I had blood work done every month and I can actually document that the months that they harassed me, my health deteriorated and the months that they left me alone, my health um, improved. And I was my very sickest in July of 2016, sorry, 2014, when they um, filed that second wage garnishment against my husband. And then after that, my health started to very slowly improve um, cause at least there was no more wage garnishments being threatened. And then when my legislators got involved and they found the money, my health took a miraculous turn for the better. Um, and then, and I've been like stable ever since the problems ended with the franchise tax board, I've been stable. So I can document that they unlawfully harassed me as a result of their own accounting fraud. Um, and I'm entitled to damages for that unlawful harassment. Um, and that's something I might pursue because there's no statute of limitation on fraud. So I might actually take that case. Um, but this isn't really about me so much. So I'm actually more interested in doing a federal uh, class action complaint using common law um, to to try to put a stop to these unlawful schemes. So there's there is still recourse available for me, um, but I'm kind of looking at the bigger picture for everyone and not just me. In some ways, this seems like a, a David and Goliath situation. And um, I think you might have to be a little crazy to uh, carry on this monumental Herculean task. Um, I mean, and and I, of course, I applaud you for it. But, you know, I mean, like, it's a very like, the, like, when they get into like, we protect our own and like, this is their own racketeering scheme and everything. Like, if you think about it, how, how do they take down Al Capone? Well, with taxes, right? You know, or I think that was Al Capone. Irwin Schiff, Peter Schiff's dad. I mean, even though he was totally in the right about all the, you know, income tax and everything, he still died in prison because he he went to bat to try and fight against these illegal taxes and tax provisions. Do you think about that? Does that weigh on you? Does that scare you away from thinking, eh, you know what, I've got a family, maybe I shouldn't do this? So I do believe that this is a calling from God. Um, I really do. And <clears throat> um, a lot of people have warned me that I should stop, including the judge, um, and back off. But I feel like when I fulfilled my calling, I'll know I fulfilled my calling and I'll feel like I'm free to move on to something else. It's hopefully something more enjoyable next time around. But, um, you know, every step of the way that I, you know, I'm a stay at home mom. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a CPA. I didn't know what was going on. Um, but God has provided direction as to what road to take and then giving me help with every step along those roads. And then when the one road ended and 
or when one road ends and then I have to choose the next road, I get direction as to which road to take and guidance on the steps to take down that road. So at this point in time, the road that I'm walking down, well, so backing up, I mentioned I want to do a uh, federal criminal complaint using common law. So one of the things that I want to do is add treason of oath. And I want to name all the people that have been covering up for FTB, you know, all the legislators and the other people in the other agencies who are covering up these schemes against the taxpayers. So I've been collecting O's so that I can add treason of oath to this federal criminal complaint. And there's a lot of people that don't have O's, um, properly executed O's. Um, and then I was also trying to collect bonds because bonds are also required. And it looks like the state of California isn't issuing bonds anymore. What are, um, bo- what are bonds? What do you mean? So the, the federal law requires that, uh, well, you know how like um, construction workers have to be bonded. So an insurance company has to issue a bond on each person so that if they screw up their job, like they... Um, you can make an insurance claim with a bond company um, to to get your money back if they screw up your construction job, you know, like, uh, so it's the same kind of thing with government employees. They're supposed to be bonded so that if they screw up and do something unlawful, the constituents can make a claim against their, their insurance bond um, and, and get uh, paid for, the screw up, like there's compensation for the screw up. So, um, federal law requires that all government employees take an oath and be bonded. So the state of California, while Reagan was governor, stopped issuing bonds. Um, and now they have a blanket insurance policy. So basically the state is insuring itself against its own failures. So that's a conflict of interest. And if it was actually lawful, they would have repealed the bond laws from the California books, but the bond laws are still on the books, which means bonds are still legally required. So I'm still trying to figure out how they've managed to skate around the bond laws. But basically, I've contacted so many agencies to ask about bonds and no one has bond records and no one will discuss what's going on with the bond situation. Um, but that means our entire state of California government is illegitimate. So if the whole government's illegitimate, we can remove them. So the current road that I'm walking down, and this is actually a relatively new road where I was on the one road for the federal criminal complaint via common law. And now I've kind of veered down a different road with the lack of O's and bonds. So I think we should try to get our government removed because they're illegitimate without bonds. Um, And there's a lot, like I said, a very surprising percentage of government uh, management, upper management that doesn't have O's as well. Mm -hmm. And listening to you kind of go through this whole ordeal and like, I don't know. I don't know how online you are, but if you've ever seen the meme of like Charlie day, do you know Charlie? And he's in that, like, and he's a, 
describing his conspiracy. He's got the billboard in the background or the whiteboard in the background. It's got all the lines connecting these dots, you know, like that's what I feel like you've had to go through, like where you're like, okay, this one, like all with all the hoops and, and everything, like it's this big like blob. And, yeah. and just trying to figure out how to navigate it because, and it's delip. I mean, I imagine it's probably deliberately obtuse, you know, where they make it yeah. like so uh, obscenely just confusing and difficult so that people can't try and navigate their way through it. So if you, and, and I don't know if you do any consultancy work or anything, but it, it, even if, you know, whether you do or don't, but like if you were to talk to somebody else, maybe in a similar situation, I know you kind of mentioned a, another case involving like CPS, but whether it's taxes, CPS, or dealing with any other like government agency, like what advice would you impart to somebody else in that situation? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think I would kind of point them in the right direction of how the bureaucracy works, because like you said, they make the bureaucracy difficult to navigate by design so that people get frustrated and give up and go away. So I think what I would do is try to point people in the right direction to know how to navigate the bureaucracy um, and how to jump through the hoop so that they can hopefully get resolution. Would you advise somebody to go down this road based on what you've been through? I feel like it's been worth it, and I'm glad that I did, but it's been a lot of work. I'm not going to lie. It's been a lot of work. Um, now, the court case did have time limits and demands, um, and so that was like a part-time job, um, and that was stressful. Uh, well, that was like a full-time job at certain points. Um, but everything else that I've done, it's been stuff that I've worked on as I have time and energy. So, you know, I'm homeschooling. I've been taking care of sick parents. Like, I sleep a lot. I, you know, I don't have time to work on this all day, every day. But I work on it as I can. I work on it a little bit here, a little bit there, whenever I have some time. And so I've just been a turtle. I've been slow and steady. And, you know, I get frustrated because I have a to-do list of things I want to work on that's so long. And for every one thing I cross off the list, I, I add 10 more things. But I just try to focus and work on one, you know, I just try to finish the one thing and then move on to the next. And I kind of rank them in order of what's most important to work on next. And sometimes I move things around in the order, but, you know, I just work on it as I can. And I think if everybody tried to work on one issue, uh, whatever that issue is, as much as they could, you know, without having to sacrifice their quality of lives, I would encourage everybody to do that. That's how the world's going to be a better place is if everybody jumps in and does what they can. And maybe you can't do very much, but it doesn't matter. If you do something, it's better than nothing. The other thing is I picked a pretty big issue, not picked. I was <laughs> chosen to fight a pretty big issue, but there's a bazillion government corruption issues going on and people can pick small, easy ones, you know, at the local level where they, you know, go to the supervisor's meetings and call them out or it does, they don't have to necessarily take on something huge like I've taken on. But I really think the world's not going to be a better place until we all try to push back to the best of our ability. However, 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's exactly what I am uh, trying to do in this show is to inspire and encourage others to take action. Um, And, you know, I don't want to scare people into not taking action from hearing your story. And so it's important to understand you don't have to be Christy Grab and 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 be David versus Goliath. There are small. It's like, I'm just a stay at home mom. I'm not special, you know, but like if, if I can take on the franchise tax board, like people, you know, anybody can do stuff. And again, it doesn't have to be a big thing like that, but you know, you just have to have faith in yourself and that you're doing the right thing. Well, I think that's part of the psyop too, is they want us to feel like it's an unwinnable battle. So don't even try. And I think maybe, and I'm probably, I'm, I'm sure I'm guilty of that in that feeling that too, we get so black pilled and, you know, we, we get so like on our side of things, like black pilled and we feel so despondent. And like, even when you see rays of hope, you know, like maybe a Javier Malay down in Argentina, we're so, we, we are convinced that no, he's in on it. He's part of the, he's part of the, like, there's no, <laughs> it's always part of the psyop. There's nothing, there's nobody and nothing on our side. And I don't know, maybe that's right. Maybe it's not, but I feel like you can't think like that because then you've lost the battle before, you know, you even get out of the gate, you got to fight and you got to just imagine and think that there are people and entities and out there fighting for us. And if not, well, then you got to do it. You have to be that person. So, um, I'm going to wrap up and I, I think you've kind of mostly already answered the question, but I, I do want you to just in any sort of way you feel like you'd, you, you know, you'd like to, but the name of the show is what can we do? So um, what can we do to fight back against any of this uh, tyranny, evil, you know, anything big and small in our culture and society today? Just say no. I'm not going to comply. I'm not going to tolerate that. I'm not going to go along with that. I mean, I did it with uh, with COVID and homeschooling. I didn't want my son wearing a mask, so I kept him home. Um, and I didn't want my son to be vaccinated, so we dropped out of the school system completely when San Diego Unified mandated the vaccines. Um, you know, the vaccine mandate got repealed, but you know what? I realized I don't want to be a part of that, so we're still homeschooling. And I think, I mean, I, I mean something I think I've discovered and learned, you know, through talking to various people about, you know, uh, these types of fights is, and, and having kind of experienced it in, in some sort of way, myself being like a Liberty activist for like the last 10 years is that it gets easier to say no, it gets easier to kind of fight and stand up and fight back for yourself. Like, like some people they're, they're like, if they haven't done it, like, I feel like I remember like the first time, like on, like just on a stupid Facebook post and you're trying to argue and get into a dialogue. Well, I've been doing that since 2010. So then when COVID comes along in 2020 and you know, now it really is time to kind of like voice your opinion. I was like, this is, yeah, like I was the first one to line up and say, this is something's wrong here. Whereas if you hadn't been doing that for the past 10 years, like I'd been doing, it was a scary step. It was a scary step to maybe put out there on Facebook or make a reply to somebody's comment that, you know, maybe these masks or there's something wrong here. Like that felt scary. But because I've been doing it for 10 years, I was like, yeah, you better believe I'm going to be speaking out. And, you know, so when you start to take those steps and you like build your courage up and you get the experience and you get used to kind of maybe, yeah, you might feel a little silly at first or I don't know, some like, like you feel you do get that feeling a little bit, but then you just kind of like, meh, you brush it off and you move on. And then you kind of get used to it. Then it's easier and easier and easier the next time and next time and next time you stand up. So that's all the more reason to just start doing it. It, it, it just start small because it's going to build you up 
for any future mm-hmm. trials and tribulations that you personally or, you know, as a society have to go through? I think the most important thing is to be confident in yourself. Like, uh, don't let anyone tell you you have to do anything you don't want to do. You're a sovereign person. And, you know, if they're violating your sovereignty, you do not have to agree to be violated. So, Christy, can you tell us where we can follow you or anybody can follow along with your your newest endeavors and your your story? Um, so my website is um, gwsandiego.net slash blog. The slash blog part is important because if you just do .net, it says unclaimed website. Um, and then I have a YouTube channel called FTB Fighter, um, but I think it's like uh, blacklisted because if you type in FTB Fighter, it won't come up. Um, you have to um, probably go to my website and click on a link to find it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I don't post very often, but I try to post quality information when I do. Um, I'm currently, my big project right now is I'm working on uploading O's. Uh, I've collected a bunch of O's and I've been slowly but steadily uploading them. So, um, the oath post is pinned at the top and that is probably being updated, you know, once a week or sometimes twice a week as, as I have time to work on it. So, well, And as I stated earlier, I'll of course have this on my show notes page, libertyalliancenetwork.com slash what can we do. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my mailing list so you don't miss out. I post, I send a lot of emails that uh, uh, beyond the bounds of the show, um, emails that you actually want to read. And so Christy, I just want to thank you for your time, for your bravery, for your light and for your willingness to stand up. I hope God continues to lead you in the right direction and, and protects you and your family throughout your journey. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. My pleasure.